Chapter 25 of The Eagle's Shadow by James Branch Cabell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Original recording by John M. Wilson for Bureau 42, donated to LibriVox with his express permission. 25. For at the height of this particularly mischancy posture of affairs, the meddlesome fates had elected to dispatch cockeye flinks to serve as our deus ex machina. And just as in the comedy the police turn up in the tank of time to fetch Tartuffe to prison, or in the tragedy Friar John manages to be detained on his journey to Mantua, and thus bring about that lamentable business in the tomb of the Capulets, so Mr. Flinks now happens inopportunely to arrive upon our lesser stage. Faithfully to narrate how cockeye Flinks chanced to be at Selwood were a task of magnitude. That gentleman travelled very quietly, and for the most part, he journeyed incognito under a variety of aliases, suggested partly by a fertile imagination, and in part by prudential motives. For his notions of proprietary rights were deplorably vague, and his acquaintance with the police, in consequence, extensive. And finally, that he was now at Selwood was not in the least his fault, but all the doing of an N and O brakesman, who had an uncultured argument, reinforced by a coupling pin, persuaded Mr. Flinks to disembark from the northern freight on the night previous. Mr. Flinks, then, sat leaning against a tree in the gardens of Selwood, some thirty feet from the wall that stands between Selwood and Gridlington, and nursed his pride and foot, both injured in that high debate of last evening, and with a jackknife rounded off the top of a substantial staff designed to alleviate his present lameness. Meanwhile, he tempered his solitude with music, whistling melodiously the air of a song that pertained to the sacredness of home and of a white-haired mother. Subsequently to Cockeye Flinks, as the playbill has it, enter a vision in violet ruffles. Wide-eyed she came upon him in her misery, steadily trudging toward an unknown goal. I think he startled her a bit. Indeed, it must be admitted that Mr. Flinks, while a man of undoubted talent in his particular line of business, was, like many of your great geniuses, in outward aspect unprepossessing and misleading. For whereas he looked like a very shiftless and very dirty tramp, he was, as a matter of fact, as vile a rascal as ever pawned a swinish soul for whiskey. What are you doing here? said Margaret sharply. Don't you know this is private property? To his feet rose cockeye flinks. Lady, said he with humbleness, you wouldn't be hard on a poor working man, would you? It ain't my fault I'm here, lady. At least it ain't rightly my fault. I just climbed over the wall to rest a minute. Just a minute, lady, in the shade of these beautiful trees. I ain't a-hurtin' nobody by that, lady, I hope. Well, you had no business to do it, Miss Eugonin pointed out, and you can just climb right back. Then she regarded him more intently, and her face softened somewhat. What's the matter with your foot? she demanded. Brakesman, said Mr. Flinks briefly, threw me off a train. He struck me cruel hard, he did, and me a poor workingman trying to make my way to New York, lady, where my poor old mother's dying, lady, and me out of a job. Ah, it's a hard, hard world, lady, and me her only son, and he struck me cruel, cruel hard, he did, but I forgive him for it, lady. Ah, lady, you're so beautiful, I know you've got a kind, good heart, lady. Can't you do something for a poor workingman, lady, with a poor dying mother and a poor sick wife? Mr. Flinks added as a dolorous afterthought, and drew nearer to her and held out one hand appealingly. Petheridge Jukesbury had at diverse times pointed out to her the evils of promiscuous charity, and these dicta Margaret parroted glibly enough to do her justice, 
so long as there was no immediate question of dispensing alms. But for all that, the next whining beggar would move her tender heart, his glib inventions playing upon it like a fiddle, and she would give as recklessly as though there were no such things in the whole wide world as soup kitchens and organized charities and common sense. Because, you know, she would afterwards salve her conscience, I couldn't be sure he didn't need it, whereas I was quite sure I didn't. Now she wavered for a moment. You didn't say you had a wife before, she suggested. An invalid, sighed Mr. Flinks. A helpless invalid, lady, and six small children probably crying for bread at this very moment. Ah, lady, think what my feelings must be to hear em cry in vain. Think what I must suffer to know that I summoned them cherubs out of heaven into this here hard, hard world, lady, and now can't do by em properly. And Cockeye Flinks brushed away a tear, which I, for one, am inclined to regard as a particularly ambitious flight of his imagination. Promptly, Margaret opened the bag at her waist and took out her purse. Don't, she pleaded. Please don't. I, I'm upset already. Take this and please, oh, please don't spend it in getting drunk or gambling or anything horrid, Miss Hugonan implored him. You all do, and it's so selfish of you and so discouraging. Mr. Flinks eyed the purse hungrily. Such a fat purse, thought Cockeye Flinks, and there ain't nobody within a mile of here, neither. You are not to imagine that Mr. Flinks was totally abandoned. His vices were parochial, restrained for the most part by a lively apprehension of the law. But now the spell of the eagle was strong upon him. Lady, said Mr. Flinks, twisting in his grimy hand the bill she had given him, and there too the eagle flaunted in his vigor and heartened him. Lady, that ain't much for you to give. Can't you do a little better than that by a poor workingman, lady? A very unpleasant-looking person, Mr. Cockeye Flinks. Oh, a peculiarly unpleasant-looking person. To be a model son and a loving husband and a tender father? Margaret was filled with a vague alarm. But she was brave, was Margaret. No, said she very decidedly. I shan't give you another cent. So you climb right over that wall and go straight back where you belong. The methods of Mr. Flinks, I regret to say, were somewhat more crude than those of Madame Haggage and Salmarez and Messieurs Canaston and Jukesbury. Cheese it, said Mr. Flinks, and flung away his staff and drew very near to her. Give me that money, do you hear? Don't you dare touch me, she panted. Ah, don't you dare. Ah, hell, said Mr. Flinks disgustedly, and his dirty hands were upon her, and his foul breath reeked in her face. In her hour of need, Margaret's heart spoke. Billy, she wailed. Oh, Billy, Billy. He came to her just as he would have scaled heaven to come to her, just as he would have come to her in the nethermost pit of hell if she had called. Ah, yes, Billy Woods came to her now in her peril, and I don't think that Mr. Flinks particularly relished the look upon Billy's face as he ran through the gardens, for Billy was furiously moved. Cockeye Flinks glanced back at the wall behind him. Ten feet high and the fellow ain't far off. Cockeye Flinks caught up his staff and as Billy closed upon him, struck him full on the head. Again and again he struck him. It was a sickening business. Billy had stopped short. For an instant he stood swaying on his feet, a puzzled face showing under the trickling blood. Then he flung out his hands a little and they flapped loosely at the wrists, like wet clothes hung in the wind to dry and Billy seemed to crumple up suddenly and slid down upon the grass in an untidy heap. Ah, said Mr. Flinks. 
he drew back and stared stupidly at that sprawling flesh, which just now had been a man, and was seized with uncontrollable shuddering. Ah, said Mr. Flinks very quietly, and Margaret went mad. The earth and the sky dissolved in many floating specks, and then went red, red like that heap yonder. The veneer of civilization peeled, fell from her like snow from a shaken garment. The primal beast woke and flicked aside the century's work. She was the cave woman who had seen the death of her mate, the brute who had been robbed of her mate. Damn you! Damn you! she screamed, her voice high, flat, quite unhuman. Ah, God in heaven, damn you! With inarticulate bestial cries, she fell upon the man who had killed Billy, and her violet fripperies fluttered. Her impotent little hands beat at him, tore at him. She was fearless, shameless, insane. She only knew that Billy was dead. With an oath, the man flung her from him and turned on his heel. She fell to coaxing the heap in the grass to tell her that he forgave her, to open his eyes, to stop bloodying her dress, to come to luncheon. A fly settled on Billy's face and came in his zigzag course to the red stream trickling from his nostrils and stopped short. She brushed the carrion thing away, but it crawled back drunkenly. She touched it with her finger and the fly would not move. On a sudden, every nerve in her body began to shake and jerk like a flag snapping in the wind. 26. Some ten minutes afterward, as the members of the house party sat chatting on the terrace before Selwood, there came among them a mad woman in violet trappings that were splotched with blood. Did you know that Billy was dead? She queried, smilingly. Oh, yes. A man killed Billy just now. Wasn't it too bad? Billy was such a nice boy, you know. I I think it's very sad. I, I think it's the saddest thing I never knew of in my life. Kathleen Samarez was the first to reach her, but she drew back quickly. No, ah, uh, no, she said with a little shudder. You didn't love Billy. He loved you, and you didn't love him. Oh, Kathleen, Kathleen, how could you help loving Billy? He was such a nice boy. I, I'm rather sorry he's dead. Then she stood silent, picking at her dress thoughtfully and still smiling. Afterward, for the first and only time in history, Miss Hugonan fainted, fainted with an anxious smile. Petheridge Jukesbury caught her as she fell and began to blubber like a whipped schoolboy as he stood there holding her in his arms. 27. But Billy was not dead. There was still a feeble, jerky fluttering in his big chest when Colonel Hugonan found him. His heart still moved, but under the colonel's hand its stirrings were vague and aimless as those of a captive butterfly. The colonel had seen dead men and dying men before this, and as he bent over the boy he loved, he gave a convulsive sob and afterward buried his face in his hands. Then, of all unlikely persons in the world, it was Petheridge Jukesbury who rose to meet the occasion. His suavity and blandness forgotten in the presence of death, he mounted with confident alacrity to heights of greatness. Masterfully, he overrode them all. He poured brandy between Billy's teeth. Then he ordered the ladies off to bed and recommended to Mr. Canaston, when that gentleman spoke of a clergyman, a far more startling destination. For it is far from my intention, said Mr. Jukesbury, to appear lacking in respect to the cloth, but uh, just at present I'm inclined to think we are in somewhat greater need of a mattress and a doctor and, 
uh, the exercise of a little common sense. The gentleman is, uh, let us hope, in no immediate danger. How dare you suggest such a thing, sir, thundered Petheridge Jukesbury. Didn't you see that poor girl's face? I tell you I'll be damned if he dies, sir. And I fancy the recording angel heard him, and against a list of wordy cheats, registered that oath to his credit. It was Petheridge Jukesbury, then, who stalked into Mrs. Haggage's apartments, and appropriated her mattress as the first at hand, and afterward waddled through the gardens, bearing it on his fat shoulders, and still later lifted Billy upon it as gently as a woman could have. But it was the hatless colonel, on his favorite black bess, "'Damn your motor cars,' the colonel was wont to say, "'I consider my appearance sufficiently unprepossessing already, sir, without my arriving in heaven in fragments and stinking of gasoline,' who in Fairhaven town some quarter of an hour afterward leaped Dr. Geel's garden fence and subsequently bundled the doctor into his gig, and again yet later it was the colonel who stood fuming upon the terrace with Dr. Geel on his way to Selwood indeed, but still some four miles from the mansion toward which he was urging his stayed horse at its liveliest gait. Canaston tried to soothe him, but the colonel clamored to the heavens. Canaston he qualified in various ways, and as for Dr. Geel, he would hold him responsible, personally, sir, for the consequences of his dawdling in this fashion. Damn, sir, like a damned snail with a wooden leg. I am afraid, said Canaston gravely, that the doctor will be of very little use when he does arrive. There was that in his face, which made the colonel pause in his objurgations. Sir, said the colonel, what do you mean? He found articulation somewhat difficult. In your absence, Canaston answered, Mr. Jukesbury, who it appears knows something of medicine, has subjected Mr. Woods to an examination. It, it would be unkind to deceive you. Come to the point, sir, the colonel interrupted him. What do you mean? I mean, said Felix Canaston sadly, that he is afraid Mr. Woods will never recover consciousness. Colonel Hugonan stared at him. The skin of his flabby, wrinkled old throat was working convulsively. And then, you're wrong, sir, the colonel said. Billy shan't die. Damn Jukesbury. Damn all doctors too, sir. I put my trust in my God, sir, and not in a box of damn sugar pills, sir. And I tell you, sir, that boy is not going to die. Afterward, he turned and went into Selwood defiantly. 28. In the living hall, the colonel found Margaret, white as paper, with purple lips that timidly smiled at him. Why ain't you in bed? The old gentleman demanded, with as great an affectation of sternness as he could muster. To say the truth, it was not much, for Colonel Hugonan, for all his blustering optimism, was sadly shaken now. Attractive, said Margaret. I was, but I couldn't stay there. My, my brain won't stop working, you see, she complained wearily. There's a thin little whisper in the back of it that keeps telling me about Billy and what a liar he is, and what nice eyes he has, and how poor Billy is dead. It keeps telling me that over and over again, attractive. It's such a tiresome, silly little whisper. But he is dead, isn't he? Didn't Mr. Canaston tell me just now that he was dead? Or was it the whisper, attractive? The colonel coughed. Canaston, uh, Canaston's a fool, he declared helplessly. Always said he was a fool. We'll have Jill in presently. No. I remember now, Mr. Canaston said Billy would die very soon. You don't like people to disagree with you, do you, attractive? Of course he will die. 
for the man hit him very, very hard. I'm sorry Billy is going to die, though, even if he is such a liar. Don't, said the colonel hoarsely. Don't, daughter. I don't know what there is between you and Billy, but you're wrong. Oh, you're very hopelessly wrong. Billy's the finest boy I know. Margaret shook her head in dissent. No, he's a very contemptible liar, she said disinterestedly. And that is what makes it so queer that I should care for him more than I do for any one else in the world. Yes, it's very queer. Then Margaret went into the room opening into the living hall, where Billy Woods lay unconscious, pallid, breathing stertorously, and the colonel stared after her. Oh, my God, my God, groaned the poor colonel. Why couldn't it have been I? Why couldn't it have been I that ain't wanted any longer? She'd never have grieved like that for me. And indeed, I don't think she would have. For to Margaret there had come, as God willing, there comes to every clean-souled woman, the time to put away all childish things, and all childish memories, and all childish ties, if need be, to follow one man only, and cleave to him, and know his life and hers to be knit up together, past severance, in a love that death itself may not affright nor slay. 29. She sat silent in one corner of the darkened room. It was the bedroom that Frederick R. Woods formerly occupied, on the ground floor of Selwood, opening into the living hall, to which they had carried Billy. Jukesbury had done what he could. In the bed lay Billy Woods, swathed in hot blankets, with bottles of hot water set to his feet. Jukesbury had washed his face clean of that awful red, and had wrapped bandages of cracked ice about his head, and propped it high with pillows. It was little short of marvelous to see the pursy old hypocrite going cat-footed about the room on his stealthy ministrations, replenishing the bandages, forcing spirits of ammonia between Billy's teeth, fighting deftly and confidently with death. Billy still breathed. The colonel came and went uneasily. The clock on the mantel ticked. Margaret brooded in a silence that was only accentuated by that horrible, wheezing, gurgling, tremulous breathing in the bed yonder. Would the doctor never come? She was curiously conscious of her absolute lack of emotion. But always the interminable thin whispering in the back of her head went on and on. Oh, if he had only died four years ago. Oh, if he had only died the dear, clean-minded, honest boy I used to know. When that noise stops, he will be dead. And then perhaps I shall be able to cry. Oh, if he had only died four years ago. And then, da capo. On and on ran the interminable thin whispering as Margaret waited for death to come to Billy. Billy looked so old now under his many bandages. Surely he must be very, very near death. Suddenly, as Jukesbury wrapped new bandages about his forehead, Billy opened his eyes and, without further movement, smiled placidly up at him. Hello, Jukesbury, said Billy Woods. Where's my armor? Jukesbury, too, smiled. The man is bringing it downstairs now, he answered quietly. Because, Billy went on fretfully, I don't propose to miss the Trojan War. The princes Orgulus with high blood chaffed, you know, are all going to be there, and I don't propose to miss it. Behind his fat back, Petheridge Jukesbury waved a cautioning hand at Margaret, who had risen from her chair. But it is very absurd, Billy murmured in the mere ghost of a voice, because men don't propose by mistake, except in farces. Somebody told me that, but I can't remember who, because I am a misogynist. That is a Greek word, and I would explain it to Peggy if she would only give me a chance, but she can't, because she has those 1,750,000 children to look after. 
There must be some way to explain to her, though, because where there's a will, there is always a way, and there were three wills. Uncle Fred should not have left so many wills. Who would have thought the old man had so much ink in him? But I will be a very great painter unto Uncle Fred, and make her sorry for the way she had treated me, and then Kathleen will understand I was talking about Peggy. His voice died away, and Margaret sat with wide eyes, listening for it again. Would the doctor never come? Billy was smiling and picking at the sheets. But Peggy is so rich, the faint voice presently complained. So beastly rich. There is gold in her hair. And if you will look very closely, you will see that her lashes were pure gold until she dipped them in the ink pot. Besides, she expects me to sit up and beg for lumps of sugar, and I never take sugar in my coffee. And Peggy doesn't drink coffee at all, so I think it is very unfair, especially as Teddy Anstruther drinks like a fish, and she is going to marry him. Peggy, why won't you marry me? You know I've always loved you, Peggy, and now I can tell you so, because Uncle Fred has left me all his money. You think a great deal about money, Peggy. You said it was the greatest thing in the world, and it must be because it is the only thing, the only thing, Peggy, that has been strong enough to keep us apart. Apart is never greater than the whole, Peggy, but I will explain about that when you open that desk. There are sharks in it, aren't there, Peggy? Aren't there? His voice had arisen to a querulous tone. Gently, the fat old man restrained him. Yes, said Petheridge Jukesbury. Dear me, yes. Why, dear me, of course. But his warning hand held Margaret back. Margaret, who stood with big tears trickling down her cheeks. Dearer than life itself, Billy assented wearily. But before God loving you as I do, I wouldn't marry you now for all the wealth in the world. I forget why, but all the world is a stage, you know. And they don't use stages now, but only railroads. Is that why you rail at me so, Peggy? That is a joke. You ought to laugh at my jokes, because I love you. But I can't ever, ever tell you, because you are rich. A rich man cannot pass through a needle's eye. Oh, Peggy, Peggy, I love your eyes. But they're so big, Peggy. So Billy Woods lay still, and babbled ceaselessly. But through all his irrelevant talk, as you may see a tributary stream pulse unsullied in a muddied river, ran the thought of Peggy. Of Peggy and of her cruelty, and of her beauty, and of the money that stood between them. And Margaret, who could never have believed him in his senses, listened and knew that in his delirium, the rudder of his thoughts snapped, he could not but speak truth. As she crouched in the corner of the room, her face buried in an armchair, her gold hair half-loosened, her shoulders monotonously heaving, she wept gently, inaudibly, almost happily. Almost happily, Billy was dying, but she knew now, past any doubting, that he loved her. The dear, clean-minded, honest boy had come back to her, and she could love him now without shame, and there was only herself to be loathed. Then the door opened. Then, with Colonel Hugonin, came Martin Geel, a wisp of a man like a November leaf, and regarded them from under his shaggy white hair with alert eyes. "'Hey, what's this?' said Dr. Geel. "'Ah, yes, ah, yes,' he meditated slowly. "'Most irregular. You must let us have the room, Miss Hugonin.' In the hall she waited. Hope! Of course there was no hope that the little whisper told her. By and by, though, after centuries of waiting, the three men came into the hall. Miss Hugonin, said Dr. Geel, with a strange kindness in his voice, 
I don't think we shall need you again. I am happy to tell you, though, that the patient is doing nicely. Very nicely indeed. Margaret clutched his arm. You, you mean, I mean, said Dr. Jeel, that there is no fracture. A slight concussion of the brain, madam, and, so far as I can see, no signs of inflammation. Barring accidents, I think we'll have that young man out of bed in a week. Thanks, he added, to Mr. Uh, Jukesbury here, whose prompt action was, under heaven, undoubtedly the means of staving off meningitis and probably, indeed more than probably, the means of saving Mr. Woods's life. It was splendid, sir, splendid. No, doctor, what, God bless my soul, for Miss Hugonan had thrown her arms about Petheridge Jukesbury's neck and had kissed him vigorously. You beautiful child, said Miss Hugonan. Uh, Jukesbury, said the colonel mysteriously. There's a little cognac in the cellar that, uh... The colonel jerked his thumb across the hallway with the air of a conspirator. Eh? Huh? said the colonel. Why, uh, yes, said Mr. Jukesbury. Why, uh, yes, I think I might. They went across the hall together. The colonel's hand rested fraternally on Petheridge Jukesbury's shoulder. 30. The next day there was a general exodus from Selwood, and Margaret's satellites dispersed upon their diverse ways. Selwood, as they understood it, was no longer hers and they knew Billy Woods well enough to recognize that from Selwood's new master there were no desirable pickings to be had, such as the philanthropic crew had fattened on these four years past. So there came to them, one and all, urgent telegrams, or insistent letters, or some equally unanswerable demand for their presence elsewhere, such as are usually prevalent among our guests in very dull or very troublous times. Miss Hugonan smiled a little bitterly. She considered that the scales had fallen from her eyes, and flattered herself that she was by way of becoming a bit of a misanthrope. Also, I believe, there was a note concerning the hollowness of life and the worthlessness of society in general. In a word, Margaret fell back upon the extreme cynicism and world-weariness of twenty-three, and assured herself that she despised everybody, whereas, as a matter of fact, she never in her life succeeded in disliking anything except mice and piano practice, and for a very little while Billy Woods, and this for the very excellent reason that the gods had fashioned her solely to the end that she might love all mankind, and in return be loved by humanity in general, and adored by that portion of it which inhabits trousers. But the rats always desert a sinking ship, said Miss Hugonan, with the air of one delivering a particularly original sentiment. They make me awfully tired, and I don't care for them in the least. But Petheridge Jukesbury is a dear, and I may be poor now, but I did try to do good with the money when I had it, and anyhow, Billy is going to get well. And, after all, that was the only one thing that mattered, though of course Billy would always despise her. He would be quite right, too, the girl thought humbly. But the conventionalities of life are more powerful than even youthful cynicism and youthful heartbreak. Prior to devoting herself to a loveless life and the commonplaces of the Stoics' tub, Miss Hugonan was compelled by the barest decency to bid her guests Godspeed. And Adele Haggage kissed her for the first time in her life. She had been a little awed by Miss Hugonan, the famous heiress, a little jealous of her, I dare say, on account of Hugh Van Orden. But now she kissed her very heartily in farewell and said, Don't forget, you are to come to us as soon as possible, and was beyond any question perfectly sincere in saying it. And Hugh Van Orden almost dragged Margaret under the main stairway, and 
far from showing any marked abhorrence to her in her present state of destitution, implored her with tears in his eyes to marry him at once and to bring the colonel to live with them for the rest of his natural existence, for it's damned impertinent to me, of course, Mr. Van Orden readily conceded, and I suppose I ought to beg your pardon for mentioning it, but I do love you to a perfectly unlimited extent. It's playing the very deuce with my polo, Miss Hugonin, and as for my appetite, why, if you won't have me, cried Hugh in desperation, I, I really, you know, I don't believe I'll ever be able to eat anything. When Margaret refused him, for the sixth time, I think, I won't swear that she didn't kiss him under the dark stairway, and if she did, he was a nice boy, and he deserved it. And as for Sarah Ellen Haggage, that unreverend old parasite brought her a blank check, signed with her name, and mentioned quite a goodly sum as to the extent to which Margaret might go for necessary expenses. For you'll need it, she said, and rubbed her nose reflectively. Moving is the very deuce for wasting money, because so many little things keep cropping up. Now remember, a quarter is quite enough to give any man for moving a trunk, and there's no earthly sense in your taking a cab, Margaret. The streetcar will bring you within a block of our door. These little trifles count, dear. And don't let Celestine pack your things, because she's abominably careless. Let Marie do it, and don't tip her. Give her an old hat. And if I were you, I would certainly consult a lawyer about the legality of that idiotic will. I remember distinctly hearing that Mr. Woods was very eccentric in his old last days, and I haven't a doubt he was raving mad when he left all his money to a great, strapping, long-legged young fellow who is perfectly capable of taking care of himself. Getting better, is he? Well, I suppose I'm glad to hear it, but he'd much better have stayed in Paris where I remember he distinctly hearing he led the most dissipated and immoral life, my dear, instead of coming over here and upsetting everything. And again Mrs. Haggage rubbed her nose indignantly. He didn't, said Margaret, and I can't take your money, beautiful, and I don't see how he can possibly come to stay with you. Don't you argue with me, Mrs. Haggage exhorted her. I'm not in any temper to be argued with. I've spent the morning sewing bias stripes in a bias skirt something which, from a moral ruining and resolution-overthrowing standpoint, simply knocks the spots off Job. You'll take that money, and you'll come to me as soon as you can, and God bless you, my dear. And again Margaret was kissed. Altogether it was a very osculatory morning for Miss Hugonin. Mr. Jukesbury's adieus, however, were more formal, and, I am sorry to say it, the old fellow went away wondering if the rich Mr. Woods might not conceivably be very grateful to the man who had saved his life and evince his gratitude in some agreeable and substantial form. Mrs. Salmarez and Mr. Canaston also were somewhat unenthusiastic in their parting. Canaston could not feel quite at ease with Margaret, brazen it as he might with devil-may-carriage flippancy, and Kathleen had by this an inkling as to how matters stood between Margaret and Billy, and was somewhat puzzled thereat, and loved the former in consequence no more than any Christian female is compelled to love the woman who, either unconsciously or with deliberation, purloins her ancient lover. A woman rarely forgives the man who has ceased to care for her, and rarelier still can she pardon the woman who has dared succeed her in his affections. And besides, they were utterly engrossed with one another and utterly happy, and utterly selfish with the immemorial selfishness of lovers, who cannot for a moment conceive that the whole world is not somehow benefited by their happiness and does not await with breathless interest the outcome of their bickerings with the blind bow-god, 
and from this providential delusion derive a meritorious and comfortable glow. So Mrs. Salmarez and Mr. Canaston parted from Margaret with kindness, it is true, but not without awkwardness. And that was the man that almost she had loved, thought Margaret, as she gazed on the whirl of dust left by their carriage wheels, gone with a few perfunctory words of sympathy. And for my part, I think that the base Indian, who threw a pearl away worth more than all his tribe was, in comparison with Felix Canaston, a shrewd and long-headed man. If you had given me his chances, Margaret, but this, however, is highly digressive. The colonel, standing beside her, used language that was unrefined. His aspirations as to the future of Mr. Canaston and Mr. Jukesbury, it appeared, were both lurid and unfriendly. But why attractive? queried his daughter. May they be qualified with such and such adjectives, desired the colonel fervently. They tried to lend me money. Wouldn't hear my not taking it. In case of necessity, bah, said the colonel and shook his fist after the retreating carriages. May they be qualified with such and such adjectives. How happily she laughed. And you're swearing at them, she pouted. Oh, my dear, my dear, how hard you are on all my little friends. Of course I am, said the colonel stoutly. They've deprived me of the pleasure of despising them. It was worth double the money, I tell you. I never objected to any men quite so much, and now they've gone and behaved decently, with the deliberate purpose of annoying me. Oh, cried the colonel, and shook an immaculate withered old hand toward the spring sky. May they be qualified with such and such adjectives. And that, so far as we are concerned, was the end of Margaret's satellites. My dear Mrs. Grundy may one point the somewhat obvious moral. I thank you, madam, for your long-suffering kindness. Permit me, then, to vault toward my moral over the shoulders of a greater man. Among the papers left by one Charles Dickens, a novelist who is obsolete now because he wallows naked in the pathetic, and was frequently guilty of a very vulgar sort of humor that actually made people laugh, which, as we now know, is not the purpose of humor, a novelist who incessantly caricatured nature and by these inartistic and underhand methods created characters that are more real to us than the folk we jostle in the street, and God knows far more vital and worthy of attention than the folk who cannot read Dickens, you will find, I say, a note of an idea, which he never afterward developed, running to this effect. Full-length portrait of his lordship, surrounded by worshippers. Sensible men enough, agreeable men enough, independent men enough in a certain way, but the moment they begin to circle round my lord and to shine with the borrowed light from his lordship, heaven and earth, how mean and subservient. What a competition and outbidding of each other in servility. And this, with my lord and his lordship erased, to make way for the word money, is my moral. The folk who have just left Selwood were honest enough, as honesty goes nowadays, kindly, as any of us dare be who have our own way, to make among very stalwart and determined rivals, generous as any man may venture to be in a world where the first of every month finds the butcher and the baker and the candlestick maker rapping at the door with their little bills. But they cringed to money. It was very wrong of them, my dear lady, and in extenuation I can only plead that they could no more help cringing to money than you or I can help it. This is very crude and very cynical, but unfortunately it is true. We always cringe to money, which is humiliating, 
and the sun always rises at an hour when sensible people are abed and have not the least need for its services, which is foolish. And what you and I, my dear madam, are to do about rectifying either one of these vexatious circumstances, I am sure I don't know. We can at least be honest. Let us then console ourselves at will with moral observations concerning the number of pockets in a shroud and the difficulty of a rich man's entering into the kingdom of heaven. But with an humble and reverent heart, let us admit that, in the world we know, money rules. Its presence awes us. And if we are quite candid, we must concede that we very unfeignedly envy and admire the rich. We must grant that money confers a certain distinction on a man, be he the veriest ass that ever he hawed a platitude, and that we cannot but treat him accordingly, you and I. You are friendly, of course, with your poor cousins. You are delighted to have them drop in to dinner, and liberal enough with the claret when they do. But when the magnate comes, there is a magnum of champagne, and an extra lamp in the drawing-room, and, I blush to write it, a far more agreeable hostess at the head of the table. Dives is such good company, you see, and speaking for my own sex, I defy any honest fellow to lay his hand upon his waistcoat and swear that it doesn't give him a distinct thrill of pleasure to be seen in public with a millionaire. Daily we truckle in the eagle's shadow, the shadow that lay so heavily across Selwood, with the eagle himself and with the eagle's work in the world, the grim, implacable, ruthless work that hourly he goes about. Our little comedy has not to do. Schlemiel-like, we deal but in shadows. Even the shadow of the eagle is a terrible thing, the shadow that, as Felix Canaston has told you, chills faith and charity and independence and kindliness and truth and, alas, even common honesty. But this is both cynical and digressive. End of chapter 30